Good morning, brothers and sisters. Chapter 2 of the book The Source by Alex Ortega, titled Orthodoxy or Truth. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Jesus, please help us this morning as our eyes are opened to this history to make a decision of where we belong and to follow you by choice. In your name we pray. Amen. Orthodoxy or Truth Constantine did not read Greek, so he had to take the word of the scholars concerning technicalities. They were debating whether the Son was of the same substance as the Father or whether he was of the same kind of substance. They could not decide what begotten meant, so Constantine stepped in and made the decision. At this point, we will not join the centuries-old debate but we want to take notice that the Bible interpreted by the Spirit of God did not decide the issue. A pagan Roman emperor decided what would constitute Christian orthodoxy. <clears throat> then flexing his muscle and declaring the decision would be a unanimous one, he motivated the bishops by indicating any dissenter would be exiled immediately. A small minority, less than five, stuck to their guns and were exiled. Thus, in a few broad strokes, we see how the Orthodox Church was begun. The nature of Christ and who God is, as taught by modern Christianity, stems from this sordid history. These facts are easily verified. For hundreds of years, this council, known as the Council of Nicaea, has held sway over the churches that claim orthodoxy. Many countless lives have been lost over disagreeing with Constantine through the centuries, for to be unorthodox is to be branded as a heretic. The established church takes it from there. We can read in the Great Controversy, page 49, a paragraph that states, But as persecution ceased, and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, she laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles, for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers, and in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and traditions. The nominal conversion of Constantine on page 50 in the early part of the 4th century caused great rejoicing, and the world cloaked with a form of righteousness walked into the church. Now the work of corruption rapidly progressed. Paganism, while appearing to be vanquished, became the conqueror. Baptized paganism became the orthodoxy of the corrupted church. Instead of following this inspired testimony, ministers are taught today that the Council of Nicaea was a Christian council. Clearly, the spirit of prophecy teaches otherwise. Notice, Great Controversy, page 50. This compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalting himself above God. That gigantic system of false religion is a masterpiece of Satan's power, a monument of his efforts to seat himself upon the throne to rule the earth according to his will. The Council of Nicaea was the foundation for what became the masterpiece of Satan. To secure worldly gains and honors, the church was led to seek the favor and support of the great men of the earth. And having thus rejected Christ, she was induced to yield allegiance to the representative of Satan, the Bishop of Rome. 
That's Great Controversy, page 50. So, the orthodoxy of Constantine that became the foundation of the Church of Rome that became the Roman papacy. <clears throat> if you follow that line, it was uh, Constantine, the Church of Rome, the Roman papacy. This shocking historical revelation is not to be set aside by ecclesiastical authorities or seminaries. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside, for a thus saith the scholars. We remind the reader that those among the various churches that uphold orthodoxy as supreme, they, this is all, <coughs> I'm sorry. Okay, these are the things that they have rejected. They have rejected the seventh day Sabbath, the 2300 days, the investigative judgment, the sanctuary, the high priestly ministry of Jesus in the most holy place, natural mortality, the law of God, and the third angel's message in general. You'll have to think all those things through and see why that's so. Surely, any candid mind would consider the transgressors of God's law strange bedfellows for God's people to choose at the second coming of Christ. And yet, we shall discover an unyielding drive in our own midst to join the orthodoxy of Sunday believers. In fact, those who disagree with the Council of Nicaea and its later developments are being disfellowshipped from the official Seventh-day Adventist Church at the present time. What is the grave issue that requires members to be cast out? What is their bold sin against God? They dare to believe that Jesus Christ is really the literal Son of God. But, you retort, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, a world leader recently asked, well, haven't we always believed that? It's time to find out why we as a people think we believe something that the official organization has repudiated. In the 27 fundamental beliefs, later 28, voted at the 1980 General Conference, are recorded the official beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist organization. If you were baptized after 1980, Perhaps you're not aware that the organization changed several important elements of our religion that the founders taught and believed. Yes, changed the religion that was believed by Ellen White and all the pioneers of the movement. But let's read some of the present official beliefs. Fundamental belief number four, God the Eternal Son became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Through him all things were created. The character of God is revealed, the salvation of humanity is accomplished, and the world is judged. Forever truly God, he became also truly man, Jesus Christ. So in this section, Jesus is not called the Son of God. He's referred to in the Roman manner as God the Eternal Son. This language makes Jesus not the Son, but rather God in the form of an Eternal Son. The difference in the language is subtle, but it's effective. Okay, so listen, fundamental belief number three, this language is found. God, the eternal Father, is the creator, source, sustainer, and sovereign of all creation. He is just and holy, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is called God, the eternal Father, which is a true biblical term. But Jesus, in being called God, the eternal Son, is called by a non-biblical term or concept. Nowhere in the Word of God is Jesus called God the Son. Only in Romanism is that term found. None of the founders ever used this type of language. Throughout the entire lifetime of Ellen White, 
The church used the terminology only begotten Son of God. You'll notice that God the Father is designated as He and also the source. These are correct biblical references and constitute truth. We've already noticed there can only be one supreme source. The proper designation for that one, the Father, is God. So the change in the 1980 statement is more than semantics. It's actually a genuine change from the understanding of the Seventh-day denomination in the time of the founders and Ellen G. White. The proper terminology for Jesus in the New Testament and throughout the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy is the Son of God, not God the Son. This Romanizing is further revealed in fundamental belief number five. God, the eternal spirit, was active with the Father and the Son in creation, incarnation, and redemption. He inspired the writers of scripture. He filled Christ's life with power. He draws and convicts human beings, and those who respond, he renews and transforms into the image of God, sent by the Father and the Son to be always with his children. He extends spiritual gifts to the church, empowers it to bear witness to Christ, and in harmony with the scriptures, leads it into all truth. Okay, so it begins, God the Holy Spirit. So now we have not only the true God, the Father, but the addition of God by two other names, God the Eternal Son and God the Eternal Spirit, are made to take the place of the biblical Son of God and the Spirit of God. Now we have three eternal gods, co-eternal, the same age. But in order to remain orthodox, we're told they're not three, but one. At this point, we confront the problem of orthodoxy Christianity, which is one plus one plus one equals one. This absurd formula is no problem for philosophers. They merely refer to it as a mystery. Well, that's very, excuse me, that's very convenient for philosophers who do not live in the real world. But what of us mere mortals who live in a real practical world? We thought all along that Jesus was real and practical. Does a sham religion come along and claim Jesus is only a phantom after all? We expected as much from those who believe in the phantoms of natural immortality and Sunday worship instead of the Seventh-day Sabbath. But what of those who claim to know the truth? Must they also join the allegorizing philosophers and accept one plus one plus one equals one? <laughs> Where in God's book of nature is such an unreality found? The proportions of such a tragic misstep reach well into the territory of Laodicea the land where blind people do not even know they are blind. We will need to carefully uncover the reasons why God's people have allowed such a monstrous hoax in their midst. We're given warnings and instructions from heaven about this very situation. It's not too late to heed them. The faith, once delivered to the saints, has become dim. We need to know how such a thing could happen. But the discovery of what went wrong may be painful, for we're the very ones who have allowed the elite ones to tell us what to believe. We must come back to Christ as our only infallible guide. The Son of God must lead us back to the Father. The Bible, instead of man, must speak to our souls. That's the end of chapter 2. Tomorrow morning we will read chapter 3, Son of God. And I hope you were able to take some notes and be blessed by this, brothers and sisters. God bless you today. Let's close with a little prayer.
Dear Jesus, please bless those who are here with me today that they are able to understand, though I may have not delivered things in a very easy-to-understand fashion, I pray your Spirit would convict and guide them to be able to understand the truth. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. See you in the morning. We're, we're moving on in this exciting book, Chapter 3, The Son of God, tomorrow morning.